Hello, I'm Nicholas Mortimer, and now for a post-workers' theatre discussion in support of the radio play, What Were You Expecting? Post-work is a phrase which is used to describe ideas and arguments that consider a future where our relationship to paid work has been radically redesigned. These ideas have been around for many years, and today are as relevant as ever, covering issues like the precarity of work, the impact of automation and technology on jobs, and the larger imbalances of the unemployed or the overworked. These topics allow us to consider a future, for better or worse, where work is no longer the central focus of daily life. In short, post-work is a proposal for ways to transform human experience. And for today's discussion, I'm also joined by another PWT member, Dash McDonald. We've been lucky enough to get the chance to talk to David Frayne, author of the 2015 book, The Refusal of Work. In his book, David questions the central place of work in mainstream political visions of the future, exposing ways in which economic demands colonise our lives and priorities. It is a fascinating examination of the design of a work-centred society and considers the big and smaller interventions which can provide ways to resist or challenge our approach to these attitudes. Yeah. Anything to start? Great. Um, so I suppose the first sort of area that of discussion that I wrote to you about um, was vaguely around this phrase automization and its relationship to kind of the topics and themes covered in this nebulous notion of post-work. Um, and me and Dash were just t- talking a little bit before about how automization and the relationship to technology is kind of less prevalent in the book that you wrote, The Refusal of Work, than perhaps other um, authors in terms of kind of future visions of digital cultures. Yeah, um, I think it is, yeah. I mean, maybe just to begin sort of talking more about um, your thoughts on automization and the kind of current climate around those themes in relationship to issues of work. Yeah, it's a good question to ask. Um, you know, I suppose like really a month goes by now where you don't see something about automation in the media. But I think the way the question is dealt with is often, I think it often lacks nuance. So we see articles, for example, that might say something like uh, robots are going to kind of take X percentage of jobs over the next three decades. Um, But we'll all be happier as a result, you know, because we'll have all of this like free time. Uh, and I keep seeing this, but I feel like that really kind of misses the official purpose of automation, you know, which isn't really to give people more free time. It's to kind of benefit capital mm-hmm. by kind of reducing labor costs, by speeding up productivity. Um, you know, it's not the official purpose of automation isn't to give us more free time. That exists as a kind of latent possibility, but it couldn't be realized without some kind of political intervention. Yeah, and I suppose that's very much caught up with our relationship culturally to technology as something that's sold to us to make our kind of free time more enjoyable. Yeah. Um, And therefore the relationship begins between that blurred political boundary between what labour or free time kind of is and how it's colonised, as you write about a lot. Also kind of directly that kind of sort of very kind of political drive behind kind of technology as well in relation to kind of profit and capital. 
and kind of how you start to kind of create more of a kind of awareness or a kind of public kind of conversation around that as well. Definitely. So, I mean, in our current system where we depend on work, not only for income, but we also kind of idealize, idealize it as a way of meeting all of these sort of psychosocial needs as well. So it's supposed to give us meaning and structure. Um, automation poses a, a real threat. Uh, I read an article just yesterday, um, and it was about the, automi- uh, the automation of truck driving. And it was sort of saying that this wasn't only a threat to truck drivers, but also what about all of the towns that truck drivers drive through and they stop at and they eat and they shop? Um, you know, what about all the kind of businesses that are kind of around truck driving yeah. as well. So when you think of it like that, you know, automation is a real threat because it takes away people's livelihoods uh, and also mainly the, perhaps the main way that people have a sense of meaning and a feeling like they socially contribute. Um, and I suppose, I guess, what what post-work thinking is trying to do is say, well, can we imagine a social and political context in which instead of this being a threatening thing, it could actually be something liberating. If we were somehow able to rethink the way that people get income and access all of these other needs connected to work, might we actually celebrate automation as something that could give people more free time, uh, allow us to do things that are perhaps more in line with our desires and genuine interests, uh, instead of at present where we're always trying to kind of shove these desires and interests into a, a kind of day job or fit them around a day job. Yeah, I guess it's about, you know, can we change the kind of social and political context so that automation is a is a good thing? It's something that's good for freedom. Yeah, and I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of the post-work conversation is this notion of radically redesigning anything. Um, in a way, I'd like to kind of, I suppose, ask the question more about the historic nature of uh, our relationship to technology and how... It's not necessarily a new conversation surrounding, let's say, artificial intelligence, but it's been going on for sort of some time. And maybe to sort of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, so I think because of AI and because the the leaps in automation are becoming a lot more impressive, a lot more of a spectacle. I guess like this this discussion seems to be rekindled. But I suppose when I think a lot of the literature that I've read around post-work, you know, it's from it's from the 60s and 70s, and it kind of predates these current fears about automation. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I mean, the elimination of the need for human labor by technology is something that's been around since the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, this this possibility of uh, uh, technological advances and increased productivity to reduce work time has been there. It's kind of always been there in a way. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested, again, reading the refusal to work about the kind of addressing of a kind of politics of time and kind of exploring the kind of history of how workers and kind of unions have fought to kind of reduce working hours and expand time for kind of leisure, um, you know, with like the kind of historic fight for the kind of eight-hour day and how that is something that has become lost in kind of mainstream sort of discourse and kind of policy in in kind of recent times. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I would have agreed with you that I suppose these 
you know, what post work is about is really sort of questioning work at the level of a social institution. Uh, you know, what what are its kind of social functions? Uh, is it any longer able to meet these social functions? And that's, I think, like thinking at that level hasn't always been represented by unions, for example, who might be more interested in issues internal to the workplace, like, uh, you know, pay, working conditions and so on. But having said that, I read last week that the Trade Union Congress in the UK uh, have plans to adapt uh, to adopt the four-day week as uh-huh. part of their official demands, and also that the Labour Party might be set to announce uh, that they want to adopt a shorter working week coupled with a universal basic income as part of their official um, policies as well. So I, I wonder whether we are about to see that change. Yeah, and I, and I suppose you're very explicit to kind of uh, to kind of direct even on the the kind of bio on the back of the the kind of book that you are talking about kind of wage work and the notion of being kind of paid for kind of time and I suppose when it comes to kind of more sort of personal knowledge notions of sort of breaking breaking away from I suppose the kind of profit notion of like if I'm going to work and I'm not being paid as you said earlier, then what is the kind of social value of that or what else could I be doing? Where else could my energy be going rather than purely for kind of profit? So I suppose it's really interesting to kind of hear how that feeds into people's kind of accounts of actually trying to kind of do that and to kind of to kind of earn less and make less money, but to try and have more enriching kind of experiences in their lives. Yeah. Um, I mean... That's part of what a more radical version of something like universal basic income could be about, is kind of addressing this injustice we have, I suppose, about the extent to which we're willing to recognize particular activities as being socially valuable. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the most common criteria for kind of recognizing the value of something socially is whether it's paid or not. Uh, you know, if, if you if you have a paid job, you're considered to be working. Uh, But if most of your activities kind of fall outside the economic sphere, then you're considered to be not working and you don't have the same benefits of esteem and status that come with having a job. Um, So, I mean, if you think about the way in which care work or voluntary work, uh, for example, uh, you know, they're never valued in the same way as a paid job in the economic sphere. So I think, yeah, I mean, if, if, if these redistributive policies like universal basic income are to be radical, I think they also have to be accompanied by this sort of revaluation uh, of what activities are important and socially valuable. I mean, as well as the fact that a lot of what people do outside the economic sphere is very valuable. A lot of what happens within the economic sphere is, um, you know, as David Graeber's recently put it, is, is bullshit. Uh-huh. So I think post-work is about solving this problem of, you know, distribution of income. But can it also be about a revaluation of, of, of what's important? Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually a really good point to start shifting perhaps into this area about thinking about performance and post-work. Yeah, I mean, I suppose my interest in... Um, you know, in kind of workers' theatre is, is kind of looking back to kind of how that was kind of happening on a kind of mass scale 
and how kind of different troops kind of sprang up, particularly if we look at in kind of Britain from the sort of mid-1920s to mid-1930s and kind of self-organised as a way of kind of creating participatory forms of kind of political education and kind of agitation. For me, that notion of how theatre was kind of used as a kind of public forum and a way through kind of collective writing, rehearsing and uh, production of, of kind of plays that workers were kind of directly analysing and confronting social issues and inequalities and trying to explore and, and voice uh, kind of alternatives. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think... If you're asking kind of quite big questions about work at the level of a social system or the level of an institution, uh, or if you're asking questions about the value and the meaning of work, you know, the first challenge you face is that you're dealing with a situation in which the world we live in is experienced as a kind of natural reality. It's kind of taken for granted. Um, you know, I think of like Max Weber's essay, uh, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, where he, he describes capitalism as this sort of, he calls it a tremendous cosmos in which we feel kind of destined to participate. And, um, you know, we're trying to sort of question realities, which in an everyday sense, we just sort of take for granted. They feel like they're part of the kind of natural order in a way. You know, Kathy Weeks in her, pro in her book, The Problem with Work, she says that the first challenge is that we have to denaturalize work. Uh, we have to find a way to sort of step outside our kind of taken for granted reality and uh, and question it. Um, so I think it is it's a project about imagination. Uh, it's a project about trying to think how things could be different. So I definitely think that the kind of things you're talking about, you know, uh, art. Um, kind of popular educational uh, kind of interventions. I think these things definitely have something to contribute to this because it is about imagination. Uh, it is about trying to sort of unsettle the idea that the, the reality we live in uh, is sort of fixed and, and inevitable. Yeah, I mean, that's in a way the kind of marriage between the historical notions of the workers' theatre and then the more contemporary writing on post-work is what brought our project about, which is the post-workers theatre, something that we're work, working towards and working on now in small, um, small ways. Um, I mean, when we talk about those kind of ambitions that you, you talk through the, the notion of denaturalising that Cathy Weeks is quoted for, are there any specific um, examples that you, you know of beyond uh, the kind of work that you do or in, in any other kind of modes or forms? Yeah, if, if you're trying to kind of do this sort of denaturalization of, of work, there's probably a few ways to go about it. I mean, one is to think about, you know, the history of work and work attitudes. Um, and you realize that the work ethic uh, was to some extent a kind of historical invention. You know, there are examples from history where people had a very different relation to work. Uh, in ancient Greece, for example, as elitist as it was, they saw work as something to be performed by slaves. Um, you know, in the Bible, uh, work was um, was treated as a as a kind of curse in the Book of Genesis. Um, 
the what we regard to be the kind of standard five-day, nine-to-five working week. This is a historical invention also. I mean, this, this is something that had to be struggled for at one point. So I think the advantage of thinking in these historical terms is that I suppose they make the present feel more contingent. You know, you think about how we came to be where we are, and then you start to sort of loosen up to the idea that maybe we could also head in a different direction from where we are. I think another way that this kind of denaturalization is done is by, I guess, kind of critiquing the human costs if we don't choose to do something about the injustices of work in the present. Uh, you know, critiques to kind of expose the human cost of this lack of political alternatives. Um, and again, I think art could be very important in that because critique is more effective if it has a sort of uh, emotional impact i suppose uh you know there's quite a lot of good kind of uh, films which i think maybe have done more to kind of challenge people's preconceptions than a lot of academia uh, you know a lot of people talk about ken loach and i daniel blake yeah uh or a brilliant film with marilyn cotillard two days one night mm-hmm. um You know, I think these things can be just as powerful as sort of intellectual writing in sort of doing this work of denaturalization, you know, sensitizing people to the the human costs of the lack of alternatives uh, and also kind of opening people up to the idea that the future might be different. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, I think for all three of us, I think we all work in academia and we all work within education. Um, And I wonder if we could sort of reflect a little bit on the, that kind of the design of work as, as it's kind of linked with directly with, with education. I mean, we're scarily drifting to a point where all kind of education will be assessed on kind of predominantly employability and our students' ability to secure jobs within six months of kind of graduating. I found it quite inspiring reading your book uh, in line with that and kind of how to kind of think of other ways of engaging with alternatives to employability and the fear of, of finding work after graduating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very worried about the state of education. <laughs> um, I think, you know, this very powerful work ethic combined with the insecurity of the labour market it kind of forces people in to adopt this sort of self-entrepreneurialism, you might say, um, to kind of treat life in a very pragmatic way. So if I'm going to go through education, then I need to make sure that I'm doing something incredibly sensible that's going to kind of pay off at a later date. Um, you know, there's this nice quote from Bertrand Russell who says, you know, we never do activities for their own sake anymore. We only do them um, if we think they're going to lead to some other benefit in the future. And I think, yeah, this reflects a lot of what's happening in education. Um, And I I also think that, you know, if we're talking about a different future, a kind of post-work future, then a big part of that is going to be to rethink the role of education. I mean, you see a lot of the discussion around universal basic income lately, and 
it almost talks about it as this sort of like silver bullet. We're going to have universal basic income. It's going to give us all this free time. And then suddenly we're going to enjoy all of this autonomy and leisure. But I think that wouldn't necessarily happen unless there was some kind of social infrastructure to support us to be able to be autonomous and to enjoy our leisure. And I think an important part of that has to be rethinking the priorities of education. I mean, can we imagine an education system that instead of preparing people to assume this kind of predefined role in the labor market, you know, can we imagine an education system that might prepare people for autonomy or for what Andre Gortz calls multi-activity? Um, and I guess the good news is that, you know, there's a whole history of kind of popular and progressive education with, uh, albeit kind of marginal examples of attempts to do this, um, which you probably know more about than I do. Well, I mean, I suppose to some extent you, you can read a lot of the kind of workers' theatre kind of uh, action as a kind of form of that in itself, as in a way of using theatre and theatre troops as, as kind of organised alternatives to mainstream education and as a way of kind of conscious raising through kind of creative acts. Um, but yeah, that, that notion of imagining, I think, is, is kind of really key and it, it kind of also feeds into kind of other forms of sort of temp contemporary theatre and kind of performance like kind of live action role play where people will kind of play out whole other worlds and kind of forms of social order and kind of how as things like that, kind of a massive kind of experience like that can kind of sit in, in, in kind of educational environments and kind of organise fictions. Yeah, and I would, yeah. I would absolutely agree with that, that kind of sentiment of how we can think to promote more optimistic and realistic sort of goals within the kind of arguments that are put forward for larger scale utopian, perhaps post-work kind of ideologies that are out there as well. And that's something that I, you know, reflecting again on parts of the, the book, The Refusal of Work, was really interesting to me was the way, the, way in which that you were able to sort of voice um, everyday people within the UK and their kind of small adjustments to their lives in, as a way to try and work around um, the kind of invisible structures of the very well-designed work ethic. Um, and that, in a sense, allows us to start to think more pragmatically about how we can see the reality as it's designed around us. Yeah, definitely. Um, although I think one, one thing I would say in reply to that is that, you know, raising consciousness is only part of the problem um, because people are bound to work not only by the work ethic and ideologies of work, but by material realities. So, uh, you know, the kind of social environment of capitalism really prevents people from living without a job. You know, it, living without a job carries a severe moral penalty, but there are also kind of few ways to really meet your needs. Um, outside the commercial structures of capitalism because they've taken over to such extent. So I think raising consciousness is important, but I would want to resist the idea that the main challenge is to kind of raise consciousness because I think people are bound to work by kind of material realities as well. Um, you know, it's, like the refusal of workbook has kind of led to some comical situations where maybe a journalist has kind of read 
the title of the book and then the first few pages and sort of taken it to be this sort of how to resist work in 10 easy steps like guide yeah and they sort of say david like what's your advice for kind of resisting work in five steps or something like this but when i think back on the book now i think it's really a book about you know the failure of people to to resist work and the way in which the kind of moral and and structural environment of capitalism really prevents us uh, from from living in other ways really prevents us from resisting this norm of you know you work to earn in order to buy the things that you need and want um, so I, I see those accounts as being more about the failure I guess of people to to change things on an individual level but I do think that they perhaps have some value in this work of what we call in kind of denaturalization you know I've also had people contacting me saying I read these accounts and it was such a relief because I've always kind of thought and felt this way as well so maybe something they also do is kind of give people permission to admit their skepticism about the value of work I suppose I see what I've seen as the value perhaps in um, understanding from maybe your perspective that these people perhaps failed to resist work in, in such a way it was more that through their actions as a reader of the book, I was able to sort of map out more clearly the uh, the conventions, the kind of structures that are so kind of um, integral to well-being, to kind of self-promotion, to kind of identity. And I, I think that's like a really central theme. Yeah. Um and I think in relation to that question, there has to be some acknowledgement that if we are to see a radical shift away from work as, as something of central value and as something that centrally occupies people's time, that could potentially be something very traumatic um, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the challenge is to sort of redesign society to be more hospitable to not working. Uh, you know, something we might hope to see is the, you know, if we all have more free time, is the development of more and more kind of infrastructures for people to make a contribution and get involved outside the sphere of paid work. Uh, can we imagine a different kind of city full of civic spaces where people can come together and discuss uh, workshops where people can kind of share tools and collaborate um, uh, and make things, uh, community education initiatives, so I think the shift away from work could potentially be very traumatic. But I think a lot of the resistance to it comes from the fact that when you talk about a post-work society, people often imagine, you know, what if they were to be saddled with loads and loads of free time right now in the present? Um, and that would be a very difficult thing because capitalist society isn't set up in a way that allows us to kind of do substantial kind of meaningful activities in our free time to kind of live outside the channels of work and consumption. I, I was kind of curious as well, like some of the forms of sort of uh, kind of structural uh, kind of fiction you were kind of talking about there or kind of possibilities such as kind of collective kind of workshops or spaces kind of really kind of rings with, with something like uh, William Morris's News From Nowhere. And yeah, I was just wondering if you had any particular favourite kind of uh, post-work kind of imaginaries or kind of fictional accounts of alternative social structures or ways of being? 
Yeah, I suppose a lot of my interest in this comes from the kind of um, French writer André Gortz, who again, I think, recognises that rethinking work uh, isn't just about coming up with policies to kind of redistribute wealth and free time, but it's also about rethinking social relations. Uh, and this kind of necessarily kind of takes us into questions of education uh, and the city. And he has these kind of nice accounts of, um, you know, what we might now call a community centre, but a community centre of the future that would be so much more exciting than, than the kind of perhaps somewhat depressing image of community centres in the present. You know, places where there would be equipment for people to make music and podcasts and, you know, tools for people to kind of create together in a, in a kind of more spontaneous way. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, there's projects such as the Fun Palace that Joan Littlewood and Gordon Pask and Cedric Price were involved in that I, I particularly found kind of interesting as past 60s and 70s uh, models of such spaces for social activities on the, the range from pretty much everything we've just mentioned. But looking back at that era, um, now a lot of this kind of these, these social projects are, are deemed as, as utopian ideals and a kind of part of a larger framework of utopian commentary, which is in some ways linked to some of the, uh, the kind of the writing within um, the field of post-work. I've been working for the past six or so years in social science departments. And I found it very difficult to present this work to social scientists um, because I suppose the convention would be to propose social policies based on empirical observations of the present, right? But if we observe the present empirically, what we tend to see reflected back at us is that work is integral to people's well-being. Because in the present, it is integral to people's well-being. You know, it's how you get an income. It's how you meet other people. It's how you gain social esteem. I guess the methodology of post-work is, is completely different. You know, it's as you, as you said, it's kind of utopian. So it doesn't involve beginning with insights about present realities. It begins with those to a degree, but also kind of mixed in with ideals about where we'd like to be. So we start in the future and we figure out how to get there. And that's been quite a hard sell for like a traditional social science background. It's kind of like utopian element that maybe turns people away sometimes. So Eric Olin Wright uh, has a good book, it's called Envisioning Real Utopias. And he sort of kind of, he combines these kind of more utopian hopes for kind of a more kind of emancipatory or liberate, liberating form of kind of social development. He says that we, we need to combine these with realist thinking about um, how are we going to get there from where we are now? What are the kind of political, material, ideological obstacles? So it's this kind of mix of like practical thinking about how we can form social policies to get us to where we need to be without also kind of losing this sense of um, hope and desire that things could be different. I think that, that's something that really interests me, uh, again, going back to kind of work as theatre kind of methods and the kind of didactic kind of techniques that were kind of used as forms of kind of emancipation and, mm -hmm. and kind of consciousness raising. There was the fact that it was very utopian in the kind of drive that the revolution is coming, 
and the kind of collective action of workers is, is going to bring that about. It was very kind of optimistic in terms of its kind of viewpoint, but then it would really kind of address how the kind of collective writing of a kind of play would confront kind of reality and would explore kind of issues and kind of look at the problem and play out like multiple kind of solutions, alternatives. Yeah, so it's almost that two-step process of, you know, denaturalizing the present, raising consciousness, and then on to sort of pragmatic thinking about what are the possible kind of trajectories for change, um, what are our demands, I suppose. I'm really interested to know perhaps more about what, what it is since, the, since you wrote Refusal of Work that you've been working on or, or towards um, and how those ideas have developed because the book itself is, is not brand new. It, I know it's it a couple of years old. So, um, Yeah, I guess it was written like probably as far back as 2011, 12. Um, and I think the book was maybe good at the sort of denaturalizing work, raising consciousness stuff. But it was a little weaker on the demands, I think, uh, in terms of thinking about what social policies we'd hope to see in what form and how we can campaign for them. I suppose I'm more interested in those sorts of pragmatic questions now. Um, and something that would be really interesting to see, I think, over the next few years is whether these demands for a four-day week and a universal basic income what form do they appear in? Will they appear in a radical form or will we see them kind of get folded back into the conventions of work society? So for example, we're seeing um, four-day week, for example, often get campaigned for on the basis that it's good for workers' productivity um, or merely as a sort of practical solution to kind of create more jobs. You know, you reduce work time and you distribute work uh, more evenly across society and I think that's um, that's important but there's still a big unknown as to whether these policies will allow us to do this more radical kind of questioning of the value of work that post-work theorists focus on. Um, I suppose one of the interesting things about universal basic income is that it's had people defend it from all across the political spectrum there are people on the right, for example, who see UBI as a way to promote employment um, or as something that might potentially justify further privatization. You know, we've all got a UBI, so the state doesn't need to provide public services anymore. So I think that's what I'm really interested to see is where these policies do appear. What, how are they being kind of framed? What utopian ideals do they aspire to? Um, will they really have the capacity for uh, challenging the work-centered society? Or will they kind of continue its logic? I think that will be really interesting to see over the next few years.